2 Corinthians chapter 3. It's where we're going to be primarily today. 2 Corinthians 3.17, Scripture declares, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. John 8.32, Jesus made this statement. He says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now last week we, uh, we were in Joshua in Numbers, and we looked at the account of the children of Israel as they left Mount Sinai, and they traveled uh, three days. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant went before them three days to prepare for them, to find for them a resting place. And they came to the entrance of the Promised Land. And in Numbers uh, chapter 13 and chapter 14, this is the account of where the, the 12 spies were sent into the land. And they spied out the land for 40 days. And when the 12 spies came back, the scripture says that 10 had an evil report and 2 had a good report. And so they found giants in the land. They found also a land that flowed with milk and honey, a a land full of blessing. But because of the giants, because of the obstacles, 10 of the spies said, hey, we can't do it. We can't take the land because there are giants in the land. We're like grasshoppers before them. And so they convinced the children of Israel, they convinced the people of God that that it was too difficult, that they could not overcome the obstacles. Caleb and Joshua were declaring, we can do it. God has promised us. Caleb says, the Lord delights in us. He will cause us to overcome. We are able to overcome it. But the people didn't believe the two, they believed the ten See, don't always follow the crowd. That's not a good thing. Uh, Follow God. Believe the report of the Lord. Even when what God declares seems to go contrary to what the crowd is declaring. You know, what God has declared to us, what God calls us to, is not always consistent. As a matter of fact, I'll just say this. It's usually not consistent with conventional wisdom with the wisdom of this world. In the book of Corinthians, when Paul came preaching to the Corinthians, he said, I did not come to you with the words of man's wisdom. I didn't come to you with the wisdom of the world. He said, I came to you in fear and in trembling. I I came to you in the power of God. And he said, I have purpose to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And so the conventional wisdom for the children of Israel was we can't do it. The obstacles are too great. As a consequence of that, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And God caused an entire generation to die. God uses pretty graphic language. I mean, the scripture basically says they wandered till they all dropped dead in the wilderness. This is, you can read this account in Joshua chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. But what we want to notice here is that the generation that was born in Egypt was born, they were born in slavery, they were born in bondage. All those born in Egypt, coming out of Egypt, every male was already circumcised. It was a sign of the covenant. It was a sign that they were God's covenant people. They In other words, they had the outward appearance. They bore the mark of being God's covenant people. 
But the problem was there was no faith in their heart. And though outwardly it all looked like they were people of faith, when it came down to it, they did not obey the word of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. They did not believe God. And so it didn't matter what outwardly it looked like. What mattered was what was in their heart. And so Jesus declares this. He says, from the heart, the mouth speaks. This is what the scripture says. So what is in you ultimately is what is going to come out of you. You know, it's kind of like that tree there. It's not a fruit tree, but, but if it was a fruit tree, we wouldn't know necessarily just by looking at it what kind of fruit was there. But if that is a fruit tree, if it's an apple tree, you know what's going to be produced? Apples are going to come from that tree because that is what is consistent with the life that's in that tree. If we possess the life of Christ then what will come out of our life will be consistent with the life that is in us. And so this generation born in Egypt was born in slavery. They were born in bondage. The generation born in the wilderness, they were not born in slavery. They were indeed born in freedom. And when we are born again, John 3, 3, this is why Jesus said you must be born again. Because see, our problem is not our behavior. The problem is not all the externals. The problem is what's on the inside. See, we could go to HEB and buy 10 pounds of apples and we could hot glue or wire apples to that tree. And, and, and from a distance, it might look like an apple tree, right? Because there's apples on it. But if we begin to look closely at that tree, we'd see that the reality is that's not an apple tree because what we have affixed to it externally does not define the tree. It's what is produced from it internally that defines the tree. What we put on there externally is going to eventually come off. It's going to eventually fall away. But if that is indeed an apple tree, then apples will be produced and there's not anything we're going to be able to do about it because that is what it is by nature. So when Jesus said you must be born again, he said that because there has to be something on the inside of us changed. So in the parable of the soils in Matthew 13, Jesus says there was a sower that went out and he sowed good seed. And he sowed it in four types of ground. And the only ground that produced fruit was good ground. The only ground that had abiding fruit was the good ground. You know why the ground produced the, the fruit? Well, the ground was good, but also because the seed. See, it's not the ground that grows, it's the seed that grows. So it's, it's about what's in us. It's about the life that's in us. The children of Israel, there were two that went into that land that truly had faith in their hearts. And so God let a whole generation die he raised up a new generation in that wilderness, born in that wilderness. And when they went across the waters of the Jordan, the Bible says, remember we read this in Joshua 5, verse 1, says that the, the king of the Canaanites and the king of the Amalekites melted with fear and their spirit fell because the God 
who dried up the waters of the Jordan brought his people across. And it was after they came into the land of promise that God commanded Joshua to circumcise their males. Now, why is that? Well, we're going to go and we're going to look at this. So, you're, I know you're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to get there. I'm giving you a little bit of promo. So, in Romans 6, 17 and 18, here's basically what Paul is saying. In our first birth of the flesh, we're born slaves of sin. Now, remember I said this generation that was born in the wilderness, they were not born in slavery, they were born in freedom. But we need to understand something. Just hold your place in 2 Corinthians and go to Romans chapter 6. I want you to look at this. Lest we misunderstand what God is communicating in his gospel. Because remember, our scripture, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There's a, there is a right way that we need to comprehend and discern that scripture. There's a wrong way that we can comprehend it. There's a lot of people that quote that scripture and they quote it entirely wrong. They misunderstand what the meaning of this scripture is. Well, now that some people say, well, now that Christ has come, God is love, Christ is love, I can do anything I want. I can live any way I want. There is no hell, there is no consequence for sin. God will save everybody. When it's all said and done, in the end, everything's going to be okay. But that's not what the scripture teaches. That's not what this scripture means. It doesn't mean now that Christ has come, I'm free to do whatever I want to do because there's no consequence to sin because Christ has taken the consequence of sin. That's not what that means. So we're going to find out today what, what Paul is declaring to us because this is a very important declaration. Now the Lord, you need to read it very carefully, now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now, Romans chapter 6, I had you go there, Romans six seventeen. Paul says, but God be thanked that though you were, everybody say were, were means what? Past tense, right? Though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. It doesn't really catch it in the English, but it's, it's an interesting structure there in the original language. And basically what it is saying is that you are delivered. In other words, you are delivered to this doctrine that has saved you. Do we have a part to play? Yes, we do have a part to play. Do I need to repent? Yes, I need to repent. Do I need to accept Christ? Yes, I need to accept Christ. But I'm going to tell you what. It was God who delivered me to this form of doctrine that has caused me to no longer be a slave of sin, verse 18, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So we need to be careful. So I, I, I said to you that the children of Israel, those, that generation born in the wilderness, were not born in slavery. They were born in freedom, and they were born in freedom. And I said that when we are born again, we are born again not in bondage to sin, but in freedom from it. But what Paul is declaring is you were slaves of sin. It's not that we're not slaves any longer. We are still slaves. I know we don't like that, right? Especially as Americans. We don't, we don't like 
the word slavery. We don't like the thought of being a slave. We like to celebrate our freedom. But the scripture puts our freedom in a very defined context. I'm not really just free to do what I want to do. None of us are. I wasn't free to choose where I was born. I wasn't free to choose who my parents were. You know, my dogs weren't free to choose whether they wanted to be dogs or people. You ever, you ever see your dog outside and he's shivering, he's wet and he's cold? You ever think, man, I'm glad I'm not a dog. Or I look out and I see the cows out there and, you know, cows are, some people say cows are kind of stupid because they just kind of stand there in the rainstorm just with this blank stare on their face, you know, and the snow and the sleet's coming down. You're in your warm house and it's like, man, I sure would hate to be a cow standing out there in that weather. You know they didn't have a choice. <laughs> they didn't have a choice whether they're going to be cows or not. You didn't have a choice whether you're going to be a human or not. You didn't. But we do have choices, don't we? We do. We are free, truly. But just maybe not in the way the world thinks that we are. Or maybe not in the way some liberal commentators of the Bible think that we are. Well, I'm just free now to live any way I want to. I can do anything because Jesus has covered me, man. My sins are forgiven. No, that's not what the Scripture teaches. See, what Paul clearly teaches... His whole letter to the Romans is about this. You were a slave to sin. You're still a slave. It's just that now you're a slave to righteousness. You're a slave unto God now. It's very, very important that we understand this. See, I'm, I'm not free to do things. It's not that I'm free to. It's that I now am free from something. I was a slave. I'm now free from sin. Whether you believe this or not, before you were born again, before you were saved by God, before you were redeemed, when you still lived with your old nature of your old man, from your first daddy, Adam, the man of the dust, you might have thought you were free not to sin, but the reality is you were caught in sin, born in sin, trapped in sin, and didn't matter how good you behaved, you are sinful because, Paul says, there is a law at work in my body. It is the law of sin and death that holds me captive. And he says in Romans 8, 1, he says, Praise God, though, I've been set free from the law of sin and death by what? By the law of the life of the Spirit, where? In Christ. So I've been set free from sin to righteousness. So we need to understand this distinction now. We are free. We were slaves of sin, but in Christ now we are slaves to righteousness, Paul says in Romans 8, 18. You became slaves of righteousness. Now let's go over to, let's go to 2 Corinthians now, chapter 3. And we're going to look at this chapter. Bless you. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of condemnation to you or letters of condemna condemnation, I'm sorry, commendation from you? In other words, he says, 
we're not like others. You don't need a letter of commendation from someone saying, hey, uh, this guy, Apostle Paul, he's he's a good dude. Let him preach in your church. And he, he says, I don't need letters of commendation from you. Why did Paul, that, that, that at first glance sounds arrogant, but Paul is not being arrogant. Why is Paul not being arrogant? Paul's not being arrogant. If you read, if you actually read Paul's letters, he tells us why. Because his calling was from God. He said, listen, I don't need a stamp, the stamp of approval from men. My calling came from God. God has put his stamp of approval. And he says this, verse 2, you are, you are our epistle. That word epistle just simply means letter. You are our letter written in our hearts. Now, understand this. They are reading, this 2 Corinthians is in a book we call the Bible, But when these Corinthians were reading it, they didn't have a Bible like we do. There was no New Testament as we know it. There were letters, there were writings that were basically commentary on the Old Testament scriptures. And so Paul is writing a letter and they're reading this letter. And he says, you are our letter written in our hearts Known and read by all men. This is why Paul says, I don't need a letter of commendation to or from anybody. Because you are our letter, written in our hearts. What was he saying? He says, your life, the fruit of your life, the reality of your faith in Christ, the reality of your transformed and changed lives is the stamp of approval. And man didn't put it there God put it there because it wasn't man who changed you and you didn't change yourself. It was God who changed you and God who transformed you. In other words, there's apples on the apple tree because God created it to be that way. Not because somebody went down there and pasted apples. Amy Kyle yesterday made a beautiful cupcake tree. It had this cool-looking moss on it. I hate to tell you, it wasn't real moss. It didn't grow on that tree. It was hot glue to that tree. It looked real. It looked really cool, you know, but it wasn't real. Paul says, you guys are the real thing. And God has done this. Verse 3, look at this. Clearly, what it literally says is, is manifestly, he says, Let's read it in context. You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men, manifestly declared to be an epistle of Christ. My my translation says, clearly you are an epistle of Christ. That word clearly means manifestly declared. How are we sure... The apple tree is an apple tree. I mean, when is there no doubt the apple tree is an apple tree? When the apples are manifestly declared. This is what Paul is saying. You are manifestly declared to be an epistle of Jesus Christ. Why? Because there is something in your life that has declared this. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ. 
ministered by us. So I can go to the apple tree and I can take the apples off and I can serve you apples, right? Or I can tend to, and I can serve the apple tree, but, but I'm not the one that makes the apples grow. I'm not the one that puts the apples there. I can only minister or serve with what is there. Paul says you are clearly epistles of Christ, ministered by us. Look at this next phrase in verse 3. Written not with ink, but by the Spirit. Now, get the picture. Paul is comparing this church, these people. He said, you are a letter of Christ. But you're not a letter written with ink. You are a letter written by the Spirit. The Spirit of God has penned this letter. Written not with ink, but by the Spirit. By the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is, or in other words, of the heart. Now what is the reference to the tablets of stone? Remember? Numbers 13. Where did they leave? The children of Israel left Sinai. It was on Mount Sinai. Moses was up there, remember he's up there for 40 days and the children of Israel see this fire and smoke on top of the mountain. And they think, man, Moses went up there, he didn't come back down, all we can see is fire and smoke. Moses, he, he must have been consumed, he ain't coming back. Aaron, make for us a, a calf, a golden calf, and we'll worship this golden calf because Moses evidently has bit the dust up on top of the mountain. He's toast, he's not coming back. If you haven't read the Bible, you've seen the Ten Commandments, Right? So you know what happens? So Moses comes back down and he's got, holding his hand, engraved upon tablets of stone, he's got the Decalogue. He's got the Ten Commandments. That Decalogue represents the law of God, not just the Ten Commandments, but it represents all of God's law. Paul says you guys are clearly, you are manifestly declared to be letters of Christ, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of God, not on tablets of stone like Moses brought down from the mountain, but written on your hearts. Jeremiah 31, 33, God declared, long before the Apostle Paul was alive, long before Jesus Christ ever was born in that manger, While the children of Israel were still still captive in Babylon, before the second temple was even built, through the prophet Jeremiah, God declared, I will write my law upon their hearts. And this is what Paul is declaring. He's saying, you guys are the fulfillment of what God has purposed and declared from long ago. You are an epistle of Christ, written not by ink, not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, on your hearts. Verse 4, he says, and we have such trust through Christ toward God. And we have such trust you trust this morning? He says, we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves. 
Do you believe that you are sufficient of yourself? Now, I know you're going to say, no, I don't. I like that song we sang today. I know I need God, but sometimes I know it more than other times. Just sometimes I know it more. None of us wake up in the morning and say, hey, gee, it's a great day. You know, God, I don't think I need you today. None of us do that. But do you ever find yourself going through life and and some series of events, some circumstances come along and you realize, you know, God, I know I need you, but, 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 but right now I realize that I really need you. I need you more than I realized. Paul says we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves. See, nothing you have that God accepts is from yourself. This is a real deep subject. This is a real big subject. I can't do it justice in 30 minutes or 40 minutes. But this is the gospel. See, the gospel is not about Christ coming and giving you the power to give something of yourself that God will now accept. God's not going to be, Christ ain't going to be standing up in heaven next to you saying, Father, go ahead and let them in because they're with me. Mm -mm. That is not the gospel. The gospel is, as Paul declares in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And if we're crucified with Christ, we're buried with Christ. That means we're gone. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Paul, Paul penned those words to his letter to the Galatians. He understands very clearly what that means. And he says, listen, our trust is through Christ toward God. We're not sufficient in ourselves. We're not thinking that we have anything coming or being of ourselves, from ourselves. But our sufficiency, he said, our sufficiency. And if, if their sufficiency is from God, that means our sufficiency is from God. See, Paul didn't write this letter to us, but he wrote it for us. He wrote it to the Corinthians, but God preserved it. And made it his word, his canon of scripture for us today so that we would know, just as Paul and the Corinthians were to know, that our sufficiency is from God. Not that we are sufficient in and of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Verse 6, God who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. He's reaffirming why he doesn't lead a letter of commendation. Because it's God who made him sufficient. Not of the letters, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Now when he says letter there, he's not talking about letters of condemnation. He's talking about this word. God has made us a minister. Look what he says. Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, not of the letter of the law, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You know this, this Bible can kill you. People can take this Word of God, the letter of this Word, and they can kill with it. 
How do we know that's true? What did Satan use to tempt Jesus? Use the Word of God. Hey, Jesus, the Scripture says that you can turn these stones into bread. The Scripture says that the angels won't even let you stump your toe on a rock. You can go ahead and jump off the pinnacle of the temple here, and it's going to be okay. Satan took the letter of the Word. When did he begin that? In the very beginning when Adam and Eve are in the garden. And God says, you shall, you shall eat from every tree of the garden except the tree that's in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Here comes the serpent. Here comes Satan. He comes to Eve. Adam's right there. He says, didn't God say that you shall eat from every tree of the garden? And Eve says, uh, well, yeah, but God says not the tree that's in the midst of the garden because in the day that we eat of it, we will surely die. Did you hear what he said? Didn't God say you shall eat from every tree? He stopped it, cut it off right there. He took the letter of God, he took the word, and he took it out of context, and he did what? He used the literal letter to try to what? To kill. And it it was that application of the letter, void of the spirit, that brought death to Adam and Eve. Because they believed the lie. Paul says, hey, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Jesus said, my words are spirit, and they are life to you. This word was never meant to be read or understood apart from the Spirit of God. As a matter of fact, if you read this word apart from the Spirit of God, and you only try to comprehend it with your carnal mind, it's it's impossible to do. You may gain a carnal mind, a natural understanding of it, but all it's going to do is kill you. You'll use it to bring death. You won't use it to bring life. Because it's not the letter that brings life, it's the spirit that brings life. Men, real men, really wrote this Bible. Real men took real ink on real parchment, on real animal skins, because they didn't have tree pulp back then, okay? guys know that, right? And they wrote real letters. But they wrote those real letters, how? By the inspiration of the Spirit of God. So Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, hey, the carnal man cannot understand the things of the Spirit, for they are spiritually discerned. They're not carnally discerned. If we try to carnally apply, carnally understand the Scripture, it's going to bring death. It'll never bring life. The letter kills But the Spirit, the Spirit brings life. How are you going to spiritually discern this word? How are you going to do that? You better have more than apples hot glued to your branches. You better have the Spirit of God on the inside of you. Because that, it's that Spirit in you that is going to open the understanding of God's word. Do we see this in application? Do we see it? Yeah. Read the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Read the account of the two uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus walking with Jesus, and they don't even know they're walking with Jesus. And then the Scripture says in Luke 24 that Christ opened the Scriptures to them. He took them from the beginning of the writings all the way through, and He showed them how the Scriptures spoke of Him from beginning to 
to end. But they didn't understand that. They didn't comprehend that until what? Until God opened their understanding spiritually. Why did God tell the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father? What was the promise of the Father? The promise of the Father was the Holy Spirit. Spoken of by the prophet Joel, that in the last days God would pour out His Spirit on all flesh. We're not still waiting for that to happen. There is some theology today that says that was only partially fulfilled. The rest is going to be fulfilled later. No, no, no. It it has already been fulfilled. All flesh means not just prophets and kings. Were you born naturally as a king? See, in the Old Testament, if you weren't a king anointed by God, if you weren't a prophet anointed by God, if you weren't a priest... You, you, that, you didn't, that didn't apply to you. But now what does the scripture say we are in Christ? We are kings and priests. Not because we have a natural lineage traced back to some royal family, but because we have been born again of the king of kings. We have been born again of the spirit of God. So the book of Revelation declares that we are kings and priests unto God. When Moses said, oh, I wish, he said, hey, Moses, there's two guys prophesying. You better come get these guys in order. And Moses said, oh, that all the people of God would prophesy. Well, I'm telling you what. God has made it such now that all of his people can prophesy. Because the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in you. The word that God has delivered to us, discerned by the spirit, it's that spirit in you that will discern this word, that will give you the ability to declare, to prophesy this word right here. It doesn't mean that you're going to become a fortune teller and be able to tell people's fortunes. That's mysticism and witchcraft kind of prophesying that God wants is the people of God to be able to, by the inspiration of His Spirit, to declare the Word of God. Whether you're reading it from a, your Bible, or whether you're quoting it from your heart, or whether you just God just supernaturally moves on you and you say, man, where did that come from? Well, it came from God. But the question is, did you prophesy His Word? I mean, if we just want to you know, get our fortunes told, we can call Ms. Cleo on the psych hotline, right? Now, I want to know what God has to say. You are letters of Christ, written by the Spirit, written on the heart. So Paul goes on. Look at this. Verse 7, But if the ministry of death Written and engraved on stones. What's he talking about? Here here we have. Picture Moses again. Here's the Decalogue. Here's Moses with the tablets, Ten Commandments. This is the old covenant system. If that ministry of death was written and engraved on stones, if that ministry was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. So Moses came back down. They couldn't look on him because he'd been in the presence of God. And Paul calls that the ministry 
of death engraved on stones. How will the ministry of the Spirit, he's contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant. He's contrasting the law with grace. The law and faith. He says, if that ministry of condemnation engraved on stones was glorious, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? The ministry of death even had a glory. So glorious that he said the children of Israel couldn't even look in the face of Moses. Moses had to wear a veil. If that was glorious, he says, can you imagine how much more glorious the ministry of the Spirit is? Are we waiting for the ministry of the Spirit to come? Are we waiting for that? Are we waiting for our Messiah to come off the mountaintop and bring us that? No, He's already come and He's already brought us that. Jesus was born... Jesus grew up. Jesus went to a cross. He died on a cross. He was buried in a tomb. Three days later, he, de- he rose from the dead. He ascended to the Father. He has brought us the ministry of the Spirit. How do we know? Because, listen, 50 days after his resurrection, God on the day of Pentecost, when it had fully come, Acts chapter 2 says, he poured out his Spirit. And Peter, we don't have to wonder what all that meant, because Peter gives us the commentary. He says, brethren, this is what was spoken by the prophet. This fulfilled right now, today, in your very presence, in the last days. God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. If you didn't know we were living in the last days, know it. We're living in the last days. When did they begin? They began back in Acts chapter 2, 50 days after Jesus was resurrected. How do we know? Because that's what the Bible tells us. That's what Peter says. So I'm going to believe what Peter said by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to believe that. Well, so if we're living in the last days and we're 2,000 years on the other side, well, when is Christ coming back? I don't know. Jesus told me not to worry about that. He said to be be busy about the business of his kingdom. Just know that he is going to come back. He could come back today. He could come back tomorrow. I don't know. But the question is, is the gospel being preached? See, that's really what should be the burning question in the mind of the church is not, is Jesus coming back today, but is the gospel being preached today? Because Jesus is coming back. There is no doubt about that. But I have some doubts about how many churches are consistently preaching the gospel of Christ. When we can take 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and turn it into what it was never intended to be, I'm not, I'm not worried about the sure return of the Lord. I'm worried about whether the church is really preaching the gospel or not. Christ is coming back. Don't ever believe that he's not. And if you don't believe that, you're probably not going to be looking for him. You're probably not going to be ready for him. So be ready and be watchful. But let's make sure that the gospel is being preached. So he goes on and he says, If the ministry of condemnation, verse 9, had glory... The ministry of righteousness, do you see the contrast? The law was the ministry of condemnation. It was the ministry of death. Christ is the ministry of the Spirit. He is the ministry of righteousness. What we have now in Christ is life. It's righteousness. Therefore, since we have such hope. I'm sorry, I skipped a verse. For what, verse 10, for what was made glorious had no glory in, the, in this respect that because of the glory that excels. 
So Paul says, compared to Christ, that was glorious. Come on, think about it. Parting the Red Sea, pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day, crossing over the Jordan on dry land. How many of you would like to be there and see that? Well, we would. I mean, we romanticize about it. We dream about it. Oh, if I could just go back and see the miracles of the Old Testament. Why do we want to go back and see the miracles of the Old Testament? We have Christ. That was glorious. But Paul says, compared to what we have in Christ, that was no glory. Are you catching it, church? See, we are, we are so tied to the things of the past. We romanticize about those things. And what we have right now in Christ, Paul says, the glory that so far excels and exceeds the glory of the old that let's just say there was no glory in the old compared to Christ. Now, you might not realize it, but Paul is getting pretty bold in his speech here. He even says this in the upcoming verse here. Verse 11 For if what is passing away, present tense, Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he is talking about what is, present tense, for what is passing away was glorious. What remains is much more glorious. What is he talking about? Well, what's he been talking about? The ministry of death, what is it? It's the old covenant system of sacrifice. It's bringing your animal to the temple and sacrificing to God and keeping the law in an effort to be righteous, in right standing with God. He says, hey, that was glorious, but what we have now is more glorious. In fact, what we have now makes that not even glorious. And that is passing away. See, when Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, I believe this with all my heart because Paul knew what Jesus declared in Matthew 24. Paul knew that there would come a day when Jerusalem would be surrounded by armies and that city and that temple would be destroyed. How do we know that? Because Jesus walks out and he says, hey, see this temple? I'll tear it down, not leave one stone upon another. I'll rebuild it in three days. No one, the scripture says they didn't get what Jesus said because he spoke of his own resurrection. He was speaking spiritually of the reality that would come to pass. They could only comprehend carnally, naturally. It took over 40 years to build this temple. How are you going to rebuild it in three days? He wasn't talking about an earthly temple. He was talking about the third temple, which was his body, which is his body, which was raised up in three days. Amen? The same temple that, that we see in Revelation 21, 22. John says there was no temple. For why? For the Lamb was its temple. You are the house of God being built up. A holy habitation. You are living stones. God, not man, God is building something. Right now, whether you know it or not, he is. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. What remains? You remain. A temple of stone passed away, but you are made of such that cannot pass away because you are made of things eternal. You are not made by the hands of man, by the dust of the earth. You are made by the hand of God, born of the Spirit of God. You are an epistle of Christ written by the Spirit, written on your heart. What heart? On the new heart God has given you. 
in his son. Therefore, since we have such hope, look at this. Since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Paul knew what he was saying was very bold. What he was, this is why when Paul went to Jerusalem, the Jews tried to kill him. Just like they, try, just like they crucified Christ is exactly why they tried to kill Paul. Because unlike us today in our Western culture and our Western mindset, we really don't get what Paul is saying. We don't understand how bold and how controversial the things Paul is saying here. But when he went back to Jerusalem, whoo, after they had gotten wind of his letters and his teachings, I mean, they flat out, they, they wanted that dude dead. Why? Because he's, he's just calling it like it is, just like Jesus did. Why? Because he's declaring the very same thing Jesus declared. He's declaring the very same thing the prophets declared. So what did Jesus say when he came? Hey, you guys, your fathers killed all the prophets. John 8, he says, you're not sons of Abraham. You're, Abraham's not your father. Abraham is too our father. No. He says, your father is the devil. Because if Abraham was your father, you would believe my words. But my words are not in you. They had ornaments. They had robes. They had little bells tied around and tassels tied around. It looked really good. There wasn't any fruit coming out of the fruit tree. See, we can come to church week in and week out We can carnally comprehend what this thing says. We can dress like it. We can talk like it. You know, if you hang around church long enough, you learn the language, right? I mean, we don't don't wear phylacteries like the Orthodox Jews do. We don't wear robes and have tassels. But we've got, you know, we've got our deal. We know how to dress. We know how to act. We know how to talk. For we throw rocks at those religious people we better look in the mirror and find out about ourselves. Because your heart and your mind can be just as religious as theirs was. And it will bring every bit as much death today as it did then. And the same religiosity and the same hypocrisy that Christ railed against, that Paul is railing against right here in this epistle, It's the very same religiosity and hypocrisy that the Scripture speaks against. You know why Jesus excused the woman caught in adultery? Not because she was innocent. She deserved to be stoned to death. He excused her because all of the men that brought her were hypocrites. I don't know whether they slept with her or not, but they were every bit as sinful as her. So he says, hey, go ahead and stone her. She deserves it. It's what the law declares. It's what the law demands. Only let he who is without sin cast the first stone. See, those guys just thought they could live sinless lives by outwardly keeping a system. Christ says, no, you can't do it. Paul says, "Uh, you can't do it. 
Yeah, there was a glory that old. But compared to what we have now, it is no glory. It is the ministry of death. It is the ministry of condemnation. What we have in Christ is life. It is spirit. It is righteousness. Now let's get down. Moses puts his veil on. It was passing away. He hid his face because he knew the glory was passing away. Verse 14, but their minds were blinded for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. Why? Because the veil is taken away in Christ. What's he saying? When they read the Old Testament scriptures, they are still blinded. Why? Because they're not in Christ. It's taken away where? In Christ. You will not see clearly. You will be blind until you have been brought into Christ. In Christ, your blindness is healed. In Christ, the veil is lifted. In Christ, you can see clearly. If you're not in Christ, the veil remains. Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. The veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Why? Because they're not in Christ. Why wasn't, a, why wasn't a veil on Paul's heart? He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. Because God had placed him in Christ. And the veil was taken away. It was graphically portrayed. How? When he's in the house of Ananias, and Ananias prays, and the Bible says scales fell from the eyes of the apostle Paul. You might not have had literal scales fall from your eye, but listen, Christian, if you're born again today, if you're in Christ today, the scales have been removed from your eyes. The question is, are you seeing clearly? This is why Paul prays consistently, the eyes of your understanding be open, be enlightened, that you would comprehend Because the seeing we must see is not with our natural eyes. It's with the eyes of the Spirit. It's with the eyes of faith. It's on the inside that I must be able to see Christ. That I must be able to know Christ. And the more clearly I can see Him, the more clearly I understand that I must be conformed to Him. This is why Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and His train filled the temple, it said He fell down as dead. Why? Because he saw himself truly as he was. See, if you look in the mirror and all you see is yourself, you have nothing to compare to except yourself. But Paul says twice in the New Testament, when we look in the mirror, we shouldn't see ourselves. We should see the image of Christ. Why? Because if Christ is in me, if I'm in Christ, then Christ is my life. I shouldn't be seeing me. I should be seeing Christ. And the more clearly I can see Christ, the more clearly I can see how well or how not so well I have conformed to him. I'm getting there. Are you with me? Verse 16, Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord, here we go, here's our scripture. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Who is the Spirit? Whether you realize it or not, man, this, this, is, a, this is a declaration of the Trinity right here. The Lord is the Spirit. Just like Jesus said, when you've seen the Father, you've seen me. Me and the Father are one. Listen, the Father... The Son and the Spirit are one. The Lord is the Spirit. Curios is the Spirit. He is three in one. The Lord is the Spirit. <clears throat> and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Where is the Spirit of the Lord? Which, let's see, which aisle is he sitting on here? 
Is he in the front of the building? See, if you, get, you need to get closer to the front because there's more anointing in the front of the building. Is that right? No. Where is the Spirit of the Lord? I'm serious. Right now, in this building, where is the Spirit of the Lord? I hope, I hope he's in you. <clears throat> it doesn't really matter if he's in this building or not. If he's not in you, he'd be in this building all day long. He's not going to do you any good. He's not closer here because we're closer to the front. He's not closer here because we have a cross here. No. Christ in you, Colossians 1.27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the mystery that has been revealed now. The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is Liberty, liberty to do what? No, not liberty to do, but liberty from what? In Christ, I haven't been set free to sin. In Christ, I have been set free from sin. I was a slave to sin and didn't even know it. My sin wasn't defined by how well my behavior was. My sin was defined because that was my nature. That's what I was born with. Just like that's a bur oak tree and it's going to make big old hairy acorns like that. And it will not produce anything else because that's what it is by nature. I wish it was an apple tree, but it's not an apple tree. I'll never eat an apple off that tree. The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. If, if the Spirit of God lives in you, you have been set free from sin. You're not free to disobey the law. You're free to obey Christ. And Christ is the one man who has and eternally will fulfill the law. You and your flesh will never fulfill the law. You can't do it. It's impossible. If you don't believe me, read your Bible. It's very clear. But if you are in Christ, you live in the one who eternally fulfills the law. You are a slave to sin, but now in Christ you have become a slave to righteousness. Who is your right? How is your righteousness defined? And where does your righteousness come from? Does it come from your good righteous actions? No. Should we have good righteous actions? Absolutely we should. But they don't come from us. A little farther on in this letter, chapter 5, Verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For he, God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Where are you righteous? In him. Whose righteousness do you possess in him? Not your own. Remember what Paul said, we are not sufficient in of ourselves. We don't have anything of ourselves. Our sufficiency is from God. Our righteousness doesn't come from us. Our righteousness comes from God. Now, I can produce fruit because I'm a fruit tree. What's the fruit I'm to produce? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Better than apples, oranges, peaches, and lemons. Better. This is the fruit that we will now produce because the life 
and the Spirit is in me. See, I'm just a jar of clay. I'm just a vessel. It's the life in me producing the fruit of God's Spirit. How have I come to be able to do that? Because where the, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Lord is the Spirit. And now I am free to produce the fruit of His Spirit. I'm free from sin. And now I am free to manifest His life. And this is what Paul is declaring. Clearly, you are manifestly declared to be an epistle of Christ. When the fruit of His Spirit begins to manifest clearly in your life, listen, you will have no doubt what you are and who you are. Does that mean you're never going to make a mistake? Absolutely not. You will. You'll probably fail daily, multiple times daily. But the question is, do you know? Do you know why you have a reason to trust? And do you know why you have a reason to hope? Beyond your failings, beyond your humanness, you have a reason to hope and a reason to trust because of Christ. You are an epistle of Christ, written by the Spirit, written on our hearts. This is why we have such trust. This is why we have such hope. This is why we have such boldness. This is why we have such liberty. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. We walk by faith and not by sight. Don't walk by the sight of your humanness. Walk by faith in the Son of God and trust that a good tree will produce good fruit. Expect, look for, believe for, nurture, so that that fruit will come forth. Amen? Let's all stand. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, your eternal word. Jesus, you declare that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word, your word, God, will never pass away. And you are more than the written word. You are the living word, the word who is with God in the beginning, the same word that has now been implanted in our hearts, that makes us alive, that makes us living that makes us fruitful. Father, we trust today that by your Spirit, you will do the work that only you can do. And Lord, we have assurance of that work because of Christ and what Christ has done. He died for us. He was buried for us. And praise God, he was raised for us. You have given us your Spirit, God, as a guarantee that what you have promised us, you will bring about according to your working, according to your will, and according to your good pleasure. Thank you, Lord, that our sufficiency is not in ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God in Christ. We bless your name, the name above all names, the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you.